I'm John David Bennett, Dean of Curricular Innovation at Mercersburg Academy, and this is the Berg's Eye View Podcast. This episode of our Making a Difference series features someone who does not require an introduction for most of the listeners of our podcast. Longtime beloved and admired teacher, coach, and colleague, Jim Malone. In this interview, which includes the extracted audio from a Google Meet conversation recorded on December 1st, 2020, Jim talks about his love for music and about how he creates the atmosphere and conditions that help his students thrive. He also talks about the work he's done for decades, supporting homeless shelters in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. You know, I've talked about this where, you know, when, when, when someone asks me what's the most innovative thing that's happening at Mercersburg, I always point out the one thing, and it's the it's your, your, your chalk marks on the board. Can you just just describe that? How so did it get started? Well, I'm going to show, just so people can see what it looks like right here, this is my total of uh, what I had going in to the uh, finishing up the fall term right in there. It's the number of mistakes that I make. And uh, I, I don't remember exactly what the specific thing was that got me to start it, but I, real, I came to realize that a lot of bad math teaching and science teaching had taken place where the, uh, the teacher made an effort to never make any mistake and never do anything wrong. And the problem with that was that it, it gave the students a model of being a math person or a science person, which was unattainable. Kids would get the impression that, oh my gosh, I made a mistake. I'm no good at math or I'm no good at science. And there was there was such a clamping down. The atmosphere in those classrooms was one of, it's a bad thing to make a mistake. That taught kids that as soon as you made a mistake, you weren't good in that particular topic and you couldn't, you wouldn't, it, you're just not a math person or not a science person. That's a really unrealistic model. It's an unattainable model for a kid to think that if I'm good at this, I do everything right all the time. So I think that uh, what I try to do is uh, create an atmosphere where it's okay for the kids to make mistakes and to do things wrong so that we not only allow them to do it, but we celebrate their mistakes and learn from their mistakes. And, and the best way I can get kids to feel comfortable with that is to count up the number of mistakes that I make to see how many things that I do wrong, both during class and out of class over the course of the year in order to establish a mistake-friendly atmosphere. Because if you, if it, when you get into any topic with any level of sophistication, you can't get everything right all the time. That's not going to happen. The world is too complicated of a place. And since we're trying to get kids ready for college, I want to get them to the point where they're ready to deal with things at a sophisticated intellectual level. So I think it's important to make them, to allow them and make them make a lot of mistakes so that they get used to it. Uh, one of the differences between strong math and science students and medium and weak math and science students is the strong students don't let their mistakes bother them. They just plow right through them and say, okay, that didn't work. Let's go on and try something else. What did I learn from that? I have a, I'm going to show you this. I hope you can see this quote on my board up there for the year, the one that says, if you don't make mistakes, you're not working on hard enough problems. And that's a big mistake. That's sort of my motto that I like the kids to listen to. That's a quote from a physicist that I found in a book. Actually, my wife Sue found it in a book and gave it to me. But what I like to do is uh, is really, for example, celebrate kids' mistakes. If for, if, for example, a kid makes a common mathematical error uh, in what they're doing during class or on their homework problem, I'll ask the student and say, is it okay if I share that with the rest of the class? 
And then, for example, one of the common things kids do with calculating a slope in math, which is change in y over change in x, is they'll often do it upside down at first. They'll do change in x over change in y. So if a kid does that wrong in class, I'll tell the rest of the class, I'll say, okay, Richard just calculated his slope upside down. He did change in x over change in y. How many of you have ever done that before? And virtually every kid will put their hand up. So then what I'll say is everybody give Richard a hand for making that mistake because didn't he just make you less likely to make that same mistake on the next quiz? So because of the mistake he made, we can learn from that. There's so much to learn from mistakes. Uh, a, another thing that I do is I always have music playing when my kids come into class. I like to put them in a good mood and I play music that I like. And some kids make requests and things like that, but I mostly want them to hear what I like because it's my class and I'm going to put myself in a good mood. I, I really like listening to rhythm and blues probably more than anything else. And a combination of rhythm and blues and popular music because of the, I, I grew up at one of the best times in the history of the universe for music. It actually turns out I was eight years old when the Beatles performed on Ed Sullivan in 1963. And I grew up in a family where we listened to a lot of music. My parents were into big band music like Benny Goodman and Louis Armstrong and all that kind of stuff. And they encouraged us to listen to music a lot. And they allowed us to listen to whatever was popular at the time. So I grew up at the time of the Beatles and the Stones and Motown. So I used to actually uh, fake being sick so I could stay home and listen to the AM radio all day so I could listen to the Beatles and Stones and Motown music. You know, when I, when I talk to your students, current students, the past students, there's this consistent theme about how they feel seen, known, and understood. What's the trick? Uh, I'm not sure I have an answer for that. I, I do know that, um, that I grew up in a family where everyone was encouraged to share their ideas. I was, not only was I fortunate to grow up in the early 60s when the Beatles came over and the Beatles and the Stones and Motown became such a big thing. I should throw a, 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 a Licking for the Temptations, one of my favorite groups, the Temptations and the Supremes, by the way. But uh, also then in the, in the late 60s, uh, in the middle of the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War, I used to love it when my parents came home from work because we would sit around the dinner table and we would talk about politics and science and religion and everything that was going on in the world. And so I grew up in a house where that kind of discourse was really encouraged to, to be exposed to what's going on around you was important and things like that. So I, I think it's important to make every kid feel wanted and cared about. And I'm not exactly sure the best way to do that. I do know that a, an approach that works for one kid may not work for another kid at all. And this is an idea that I stole that I've always had, but I stole from a famous physicist named Richard Feynman. Here's Richard Feynman's picture right there in an Apple commercial. And one of the things he talked about being a great, well-respected teacher at uh, Caltech was that they asked him how he did it. And he said, I don't really know. All I know is that there's a lot of different learning styles and that what works for kid A might not work for kid B. So I have to give both approaches because I need to be able to reach them. So I think the more ways you can approach a topic, the more different ways you can present it, the more kids you will pick up as you go along. And you wanna to try to establish the fact that, for example, when you 
show kids how to do a homework problem on the board, that that's not the only way to do it. It's really good to get other kids to share. A Chinese student I had in AP physics about 20 years ago named David Gao, who I would do these big fancy derivations and problems and it'd take me five or 10 minutes to do the solution to a problem. And David would put his hand up and say, Mr. Malone, can I show you an easier way? <laughs> and I say, yes, David, go right ahead. Please show us how to do it in 30 seconds instead of 10 minutes. And it keeps you humble. I, I think that another thing that Richard Feynman said about teaching is, he said, I really like to find ways to explain things and I think I'm pretty good at it, but I also realize that sometimes I'm just entertaining myself. And I think that that's a really important thing for teachers to remember. Sometimes you think you run a great class and all you were really doing was entertaining yourself and the kids can't tell it's any different from any other classes that you run. So I think it's important to keep humble about that and to be realistic about it. But I also think that any good teacher at the end of a class sort of does a quick mental checklist of how did that go? Did I do a good, what, did it have a good atmosphere? Did it have a bad atmosphere? I don't ask, I, know, I don't say, did I do a good job? What I say was, did the kids get a good feeling? Was there a good buzz from the kids in that class or was there not a good buzz? I think it's important to check in. And, and so making the classroom a fun place to come to, I think if you can get kids to like coming to your classroom, that's about 90% of the battle. Well, I think I, I get a quote from a, a note I was just reading last night from a recent graduate, Annie Claff, who had me and my wife also. She had Sue for chemistry in 10th grade and had me for uh, physics in 11th grade. And she thanked us for creating an atmosphere which was rigorous, but which it was okay to have fun. That, it, that being in class could be really funny and, and enjoyable and, and you could be wild and you could say crazy things and you could laugh and you can get up and walk around out of your seat and things like that. And I think that uh, both Sue and I uh, try to create an atmosphere where it's okay. We, I mean, basically one of my motives is really selfish. I wanna have fun in class. I wanna enjoy it. So I'm gonna tell jokes and I'm gonna have fun and I'm gonna have a good relationship with kids, which is fun where we can make fun of each other and things like that. Uh, I, in addition to the Franklin County Shelter for the Homeless, we also take food during the winter to the Chambersburg Cold Weather Overnight Shelter, which is a different organization that is open uh, through from December 1st to April 1st. I first started, I, I don't remember exactly, it's 25 or 30 years ago, I know it's at least that much, could even be a little longer than 30 years, my memory's not so great. All I remember is being around, I remember being around on a, on a Sunday in uh, Mercersburg, realizing how good we had it at Mercersburg and realizing that there were people living within a couple of miles of the academy campus who had no food and did not have enough heat for their house and things like that. So I started to reach out to local organizations that might be helping people who were less fortunate. So it was just a matter of being fully appreciative of how spoiled we are, I hate to use that term, but how good we have it at Mercersburg in terms of what we have in the way of resources, in terms of food, in terms of a, in terms of a safe place to stay, a warm place to stay in the wintertime and things like that and realizing that there's a lot of people who don't have those advantages and most people will never get anywhere. Most, most kids will never have the opportunity to go to a place like a Mercersburg. It's not gonna happen. It, the majority, 90% of the people in the country will never have an opportunity like that. So it seemed to me that if we have so much, 
such an abundance of things like that. And there are people close by who have a deficit of things like that. Why can't we try to share it a little bit? And why can't we find ways to reach out and uh, help some of those people who could use the basic supplies like food? Just, you know, enough enough food to eat for a meal, enough decent food to eat for a meal when we get to eat three square meals a day at Mercersburg and uh, get treated so well. Uh, why wouldn't why can't we try to find out? I, I thought not only is it good for helping the people, I also think it's good to keep the people at Mercersburg aware of the fact that they have it pretty easy. I think both teachers and students alike at Mercersburg, it's really easy to fall into the trap of taking for granted what we have and just assuming that everybody has it as good as we do or just not thinking about the issue one way or the other. So I thought of it also as a sort of an educational opportunity to remind people that there are those around that who, who have not much at all and we live in a very fortunate situation. So it's, it's our responsibility to help people who are less fortunate than us. That's the way I was raised in the family that I grew up in, to always be aware of the fact that how, uh, how good we have it. I grew up in an upper middle class suburb of Philadelphia and I went to a really good public high school and things like that. But my parents made us, me and my sisters, fully aware of how good we had it and to try to make sure that we never forgot that we were way more fortunate than most people were. So it comes sort of from my family history. It comes sort of from being at Mercersburg for, I was there maybe five years or so or 10 years. And I said, you know what? We have it really good here. There's people around us who don't have it so good. Let's see if we can do something about that. I feel like I'm performing nothing if I, if I can't do any better than on a Sunday taking dinner to some people at a homeless shelter in Chambersburg. Uh, what I do is uh, I uh, put together a list of teachers. I, I basically send out an email to the whole faculty. At the, For example, uh, I recently sent out emails to the faculty about the winter term homeless shelter visit schedules, which are our Sunday evening meals to the overnight, excuse me, to the homeless shelter and Monday night evening meals to the cold weather overnight shelter and ask for volunteers, ask for teachers who are willing to uh, take food to those places. And what we have done, there've been two ways you could do it traditionally in the past. You could either buy and prepare your own food, all right, and take it, or you could get food from the dining hall because one of our uh, previous business managers, Gail Wolf, 20 years ago or so told me, he said, you know, we could save money uh, on meals in the dining hall, enough actually to pay for the homeless meals that we serve over the course of a year because the homeless shelters that we serve are not like big city homeless shelters that have hundreds of people in them. They have a capacity of about 15 to 20 people, basically, maybe as many as 24. And we could save enough money to pay for all of those meals out of the food in our dining hall budget by once or twice a year having a pancake dinner or a very simple dinner where instead of serving meat and potatoes and salads and desserts and things like that, if we just had pancakes, the amount of money we can save doing that twice in a dining hall that serves 500 people can pay uh, support that food to the homeless shelters for the whole year. That was Jim Malone. Thanks to Jim Bradley for her help producing this podcast, and special thanks to Brian Morgan, Class of 2007, and Maddie Norris, Class of 2021, for writing and performing the music. If you know of a Mercersburg graduate who's making a difference and you'd like to nominate them for an appearance on this podcast, send an email to alumni at mercersburg.edu. 
Thank you for listening.